Millions of people have been told that natural selection is evidence for evolution. Find out how it actually supports what the Bible says about a recent creation. This is the audio podcast version of our TV show. Both of them are produced by Creation Ministries International. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. Now, we hear that there's this common claim that we see evolution happening all around us all the time. That's the, that there's mountains of evidence for evolution. That's the famous phrase yep. that's used. And uh, when scientists observe animals changing, that's something that, uh, that has been observed and, and we obviously have no problem with that. But then they say that the accumulation of these small changes over millions of years could add up to evolving one kind into another. Right. And uh, that's what we want to talk about on this, on this program of Creation Magazine Live. And we'll actually show that the very opposite is true. Right. Yes, living things change, but they don't change in a way that's consistent with evolution. Right. I, I mean, um, most evolutionists think this way. Like small changes guided by natural selection, genetic mutation, we're, we're going to have that. Um, and that's why, actually, usually the answers given by most Bible believers, when, when somebody challenges them about evolution, they're actually inadequate. You know, if a challenger says something like, well, Mosquitoes have evolved resistance to DDT within right. 40 years. Um, if that's not evolution, you know what is it? And, and if the Christian says, "Well, yeah," but you know, they, they focus on the amount of change. They say, "Well, yeah," but it's just variation within the kind. The, the, the mosquito is still a mosquito. Um, you know, it hasn't turned into anything else. You know, but that's not really a good, a good answer, actually. That's right. It's it's the it's the type of change that's the real critical right. aspect. Yes, the mosquito is still a mosquito, or you look at changes in dogs, or, or whatever whatever living thing we want to talk about, right. and we can say, "Wow, look at this! Look at the amount of change!" And in some cases, the amount of change is huge. It's a huge change, right. but that's not the issue. Right. We also, as creationists, we also agree that some living things change a huge amount, right. and we'll talk about that. Yep. But it's the type of change that's critical. Right. So. Uh, uh, a uh, well-known evolutionist, Dr. Jerry Coyne, he's a uh, biologist. He was uh, doing a book review in Nature, and uh, he, uh, he's from the University of Chicago. Anyway, and he was reviewing this book that uses common arguments uh, that we see used for, for evolution, such as, you know, uh, you know, antibiotic resistance in bacteria, right. and these, yeah. these common, common uh, things that we see. Anyway, he was, he was saying that, well, this book, you know, it, it demonstrates evolution, but he was deploring the fact that it probably isn't going to uh, convince uh, creationists. And he, uh, he actually said this, creationists are uh, unwilling to extrapolate from micro to macro evolution. They're being irre uh, irrational. Irrational. Yeah. Well, he, it's true that we're unwilling to extrapolate, but that extrapolation is completely unwarranted. That's as, right. As we'll see. Yeah. He actually says um, that this argument defies common sense. You know, he says, when after a Christmas visit, we watch Grandma leave on the train to Miami, we assume that the rest of her journey will be an extrapolation of that quarter mile. Now, he, he's used this, um, this train analogy uh, quite a bit, right? So he, uh, presumably he's from, uh, his family's from Chicago. So his, his idea is, listen, as long as the direction we're going is the right direction, you don't have to actually see the entire journey. So we, you we don't we, have we, to see the train get to Miami. Right. right. We, we, yep. we pop grandma on the chain. We watch the quarter mile. We see her going down that way. So it's just logical to assume, well, she's going to get there eventually. We don't need to see the whole process. Of course, uh, he's revealing something here about um, 
science and evolution. Empirical science is based on observation. So if you're actually going to say, yeah, grandma got to Miami, you'd have to observe it the whole way. Right. right? If it right. was going to be empirical so science. So here he's, he's talking about that extrapolation that he mentioned in the quote we just had up there. That's so right. It is an extrapolation. A exactly. But is it valid? That's the key. Yeah. Um, so, so his claim is that, you know, uh, if we're unwilling to, um, to go with this, if, if we can't extrapolate that, then, then we're just being completely irrational. But is this the, you know, all living things uh, that we see have um, genetic information in them and coded information, you know, of course, in the DNA, that's what we see. So when you really think about it, if, if this first living thing in the evolutionary um, scenario com comes into being, something like the an first amoeba. first living cell, something yeah, like that, yeah. It, it would have to contain just a small bit of genetic information because it's very simple, of course, in, in, their, in their theory. And so uh, if you look at the diagram here, you've got, you've got coded information. Like DNA is kind of like the library of information, we'll say, that codes for this, this living thing. So it must have had just a... A small library of information, let's yeah. say just one book of the of information. information to make itself, right. of course. But if evolution was true, and you were going to turn that amoeba into, say, something like a horse over millions of years, what do you have to do to the, 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 the DNA library of an amoeba to turn it into a horse? Well, you've got to write out all these, you know, massive amounts of, of new genetic information. You'd have to create books right. upon books, of, of total libraries of information. So it's... Uh, it's not the amount of change here that we're talking about. It, it's the increase, the creation of new genetic information that evolutionists need to show. That's right. It's the direction of change, not the, uh, not, it's not just any change. Not right. just any change is, it w will support evolution. It's the direction of change. It needs to be an addition of huge amounts of new genetic information. Right. So natural selection, can it do that? Well, here's an example. Now you'll see on the on the diagram here we've got uh, trees, and and what we're talking about here is the um, you know the, the length of their their roots. That's different basically. varieties of trees. Okay. Right. Yep. Well, they're the same tree, but they've got genetic information. Um, you know, just like we see in, in other living things, where you might have a tall one or a short one or whatever. Yeah. Like there's the, differences between them. Yeah. They're not here all here we're talking about the genetic information for the length of their roots. So here we've got a, a grouping of trees, and we see that the the moisture, the water table, is, is fairly low. And so obviously trees with long roots, genetic information to, to code so that they have long roots, they can reach the water. And the, the ones that have medium length roots, well, they're, they're struggling a bit, but the, the ones with short roots, um, they're gonna die out gonna in that environment, out. right? Yeah. So the seeds fall in this environment and the, the short uh, rooted trees get wiped out. And of course, uh, over time, those, those medium length, um, you know, tree roots, they're, they're probably going to die out as well, that they're less able to survive. And uh, eventually we'll get uh, a bunch of trees with genetic information for long roots. And, and all the trees with the, the information for short roots, they've died out in that environment. Right. And those trees are now more adapted to that environment than their parents were. Right. We got rid of the information for short roots, we're left with this. Well, that's right. natural selection. That's what we see in natural selection. And everybody agrees with that. Creationists, we've always agreed with that. Exactly. And it's still an important part of the creation model today. But here's the point. You started out with trees with genetic information for short roots and long roots. You got rid of the, the short-rooted genes, now you've only got long roots. So you've got a le less information than what we started with. Right. Because now in that population, you've lost the trees with the genetic instructions for short roots. That's right. So it's a downhill change. Speaking evolutionarily, it's a downhill change, not an uphill change. There's been no new information added, right. as we've said many times. And uh, it's going in the wrong direction. That, that's, that's the problem. Yep. So uh, 
As uh, Walter Veith, he's the holder of uh, Chair of Zoology at the University of Western Cape, has said, the very name selection implies that you're choosing between two or more variants. So that means that the end result is the extinction of one in favor of the other. Natural selection never increases the number of variants, it only decreases them. So how does a mechanism that makes less and less end up making more and more? Well, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you can get out your map and you can want to go from Chicago to Miami and you can plan out that route in your mind, right? But uh, if uh, grandma gets on the train and uh, she starts going in the wrong direction, She's never getting to Miami. <laughs> we don't know where she's going to get to. <laughs> and interesting, no amount of time is going to help it. Right. The, the, the initial premise is that, well, look at these little changes in living things. We can breed different types of roses or tulips or dogs or racehorses or trees or, or whatever. Right. And, and all you have to do, you silly creationist, is just add millions of years. Can't you see how the little changes will add up and, and getting grandma to Miami? Right. It's like the, it's like the recipe. Just add water. Just add millions of <laughs> years add millions and poof, it will, will happen. Stuff. Okay, many people will be familiar with Darwin's finches, the right. finches that he observed in varying different types, beak shapes, for example, in the Galapagos Islands. And Darwin proposed that all of those finches with the different beak types came from an original parent population that all, had, that all were pretty much the same. Right. And that's what creationists believe today. Well, that, that's, that's the thing. He said, well, there must have been an original you know, pair of finches that produced all these different things. That's exactly what the creationist model uh, proposes. Right. Uh, so creationists and evolutionists are believing the same thing here, but evolutionists are saying, no, that, that splitting, that can actually cause new, uh, you know, one kind to morph into another is basically yeah. what they're saying. And they're still, they're still all finches, and, and uh, you have different beak types, and it came from the original population. It's right. quite easy to understand, actually. Yep. Now, creationists have long proposed that such splitting of, of, uh, of one population into different varieties, uh, we, we've long proposed that. Yep. Uh, wolves, coyotes, dingoes, for example, the different types of dogs, um, came from one pair that got off the ark. Right. The question of time, however, has been seized on by the anti-creationists, and they've right. said that, uh, no, no, this takes, this takes way longer than the Bible allows in the time scale since the time of the flood, about 43, 4,400 years right. ago. They're, they're saying that there's no way, if you had two original kind, that, that it, you could possibly get that much diversification, that natural selection could happen that quickly. Yes, and they're talking of, of diversification rates of between one and five million years for some of these things to go from a parent population to the variety that we have today in some groups of living things. Right. That obviously doesn't fit with a Bible. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Scripture w would indicate that these, this diversification must have taken place in a very short period of time. Yes. Um, because their usual guesstimate of how long it took for Darwin's finches to, to radiate and to create all the different ones is, is several million years, as, as you mentioned. But uh, Princeton zoology professor Peter Grant actually released some uh, results of an intensive 18-year study. He and his wife did a study on, on Darwin's finches. In, in the Galapagos. In the Galapagos. Yes. He's, he's an evolutionist. And uh, they were observing natural selection in action. So to many evolutionists, that means they observed evolution, evolution in action. Evolution in action. Right, yes. right. Um, you know, so, you know, during uh, drought years, you know, you, you get... Uh, um, uh, finches, they didn't, there's s small seeds. Uh, so you, you, the selection favor would be finches with large beaks, right? So you got the, the bigger seeds, you can, you can crack them open with your, your bigger beaks or, you know, then if, if, if as the, the seasons shift and stuff like that, you start seeing changes in the, in the beak finches um, 
Really, before their eyes. They're, yeah, they're actually yeah. on site. They're watching this happen from so season to season. So they observe changes in the shape of the beaks based on the climate. Exactly. And then the food availability and stuff. But what was surprising to them is the speed at which this, this change took place. I mean, their, their study was over 18 years. That's within your own lifetime you're sure, seeing, yeah. seeing this. And uh, what was observed, the grant estimates that it would take only 1,200 years to transform the medium ground finch into the cactus finch. And to convert it into the more similar large ground finch, it would take only some 200 years. So this is, this is mind-blowing for them. They just thought, well, how could natural selection happen so quickly? Right? And they, but notice these little changes that, uh, that they've observed and that we all agree with as right? creationists, these little changes haven't added any new information. Right. So again, yes, we observe natural selection happening as the Grants did there in the Galapagos. Mm -hmm. The finches, the, the beaks of these finches change, it, but it, it hasn't changed in a way that's beneficial to evolution. Right, because it's only opting or, or reacting with the initial genetic information that was already in the population. Now, What's interesting is, of course, we get a lot of resistance from evolutionists, uh, of course, atheistic of course. evolutionists or you know, non-believers. But um, interesting, even old earth creationists like uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, who, who has yes. a ministry that, that believes God created, but he, that God created over millions of years. He's bought into the, the evolutionary timeline, these types of things. He's also used this criticism of, of a creationist. He, he's saying that, well, you, you creationists are proposing evolution faster than the evolutionists. This is one of the things he said in, uh, in his book, The Genesis Question. He says, perhaps the most stunning irony of the creation day controversy lies buried but alive in young earth creationist literature. As the following paragraphs show, those leaders who have leveled some of the most stinging cri criticisms at old earth creationists are actually forced by their own interpretation of scripture to be hyper evolutionists. Their confidence in the efficiency of natural process evolution exceeds even that of the most ardent non-theistic evolutionists. And, and that, just, that just blows me away. I mean, I, I remember reading a manuscript copy that the Before Refuting Compromise went to press. By and, Dr. And Jonathan Sarfati. By, yeah. by one of our scientists, yeah, Dr. Sarfati, uh, which, which takes on a lot of these claims by Dr. Hugh Ross. Yep. And just reading where he doesn't even believe in natural selection, like he, he or, or doesn't understand it. Doesn't understand it. Yeah. Living things change, but they don't change in a way that favors evolution. And even some Christians don't understand that. So what scientists are actually observing today are that creatures are changing so fast, ad adapting to environments in, in time frames, even speciation occurring in time frames that are absolutely blowing evolutionists' minds because they're they're official uh, stance for many years has been that no that would have taken millions of years for for, th for this type of thing to happen so let's let's just um, talk about what our our the biblical creationist model is god created kinds of creatures to reproduce after their own kinds there would right. have been two of every kind seven of some go on board noah's ark so that they could repopulate the earth after the flood and that um from those uh, at least two uh, of certain ones uh vertebrate animals you could have created all the different species from there that's what our model has always said and the criticism has been no that that couldn't happen whether it's from evolutionists or, or old earth creationists etc etc yeah, right so here, we, here we here we have a, something that we can do to compare the two models because right. the biblical model actually requires rapid changes right. in living things but not evolution <laughs> no no it doesn't um, 
animals on the ark multiply to fill various different ecological niches and so on. Right. Uh, wolves, dingoes, coyotes, foxes, jackals, that kind of thing. You have all those varieties yep. uh, uh, in, in the different areas of the world. Yep. Um, because there are historical records showing that some of these different types of animals within a kind have been around for a long time, going, getting, getting back close to the flood. Again, the speed of right. natural selection, we require that, the, the biblical model requires that to be very, very fast. Exactly. And uh, we have examples of it, which is very encouraging yes. uh, for, for yes. creationists, for, for biblical uh, creationists to, to understand, yeah, we're actually observing these things. For example, researchers in Trinidad uh, relocated guppies from a waterfall pool teeming with predators uh, to, um, to guppy-free pools uh, in another location that uh, had only one uh, predator in there, basically. And the descendants of the transplanted guppies adjusted to their new circumstances by growing bigger, maturing later, having fewer and, and uh, uh, bigger offspring. And, and again, the speed of these changes bewildered evolutionists. Uh, because th their millions of years view required, well, no, this, this should have happened over many, many long period, or like long years, but uh, it happened so quickly. One evolutionist actually said this, the guppies adapted to their new environment in a mere four years, a rate of change some 10,000 to 10, <laughs> 10 million times faster than the average rates determined from the fossil record. I mean, that's how they get their dating, right? They look right. at animals in the fossil record and they assume that one kind evolved into another and then they apply dates to those rocks. And that's right. why they have these, these extended time frames where they think evolution happens right. slowly. So look at this observable, repeatable, observable science we're looking at in the present. Just take that, go with the Bible's history of a great flood, millions of years vanishes and all the evidence fits. Yeah, it it yeah. totally fits what the creationists have been saying. There's other examples we can think of as well. In the Bahamas, uh, small numbers of anole lizards were transplanted from an island with tall trees to nearby islands with shorter trees and, and, right. and bushier vegetation. There, it, what was discovered is that in just a few generations, the relative length of their hind limbs was greatly decreased. Mm -hmm. And that was thought to be a good adapt adaptation for the vegetation on these new islands. Right. But again, the speed of adaptation was remarkable when, uh, when, when the scientists that observed that adaptation, they wow, this is, this is very, very fast. Right. Well, that supports the biblical model. That supports what we believe, uh, supports what the Bible says. Exactly. And uh, on uh, some small islands of British Columbia, there's a, a type of daisy on, on islands. And very quickly, uh, of course, they produce seeds, which you know, can get blown around by the wind. And very quickly, the, uh, the seeds that can, be, can fly, basically, when the wind catches them, they, they travel right. a long distance, yeah. um, they started getting uh, taken out of the population very quickly, of course. Why? Well, because the wind blows them, they fall into the sea, the, the, the plant and doesn't the, reproduce. Gone, yeah. But the plants that were producing seeds that didn't fly very far at all, bigger, heavier ones, they started... Um, you know, overtaking the population, and now um, they're the dominant they're variety. The, they're the on, dominant on variety. The yeah, yeah. And and again, happened very very quickly. Another example: there's uh, there's bird biting mosquitoes in the London Underground, and uh, the, in the train network there, the the tube. Yeah. And uh, they're now biting humans and rats instead. <laughs> but uh, they've already become a separate species. Right. So you've got so much diversification within that mosquito kind that you no longer have those two groups interbreeding and technically at that point you've got another species another species and it happened quickly right 
and uh, uh, a house study uh, of, or a study of how, uh, mice in uh, in Portugal again has has shown that a new species of these mice has occurred in less than 500 years. So we are observing yeah. speciation happen very quickly. It's not because of an accumulation of new information. And so this totally fits with what biblical creationists have been saying for many, many years about natural selection. That's right. And actually defies what the evolutionists have been saying. Well, here's our in the news section. And uh, earlier we mentioned Dr. Peter Grant's study of the, the yes. Galapagos finches, et cetera. And, and I actually came across a, uh, a book, a, a review of a book that had been written about um, about Grant's research, and it was called The Beak of the Finch, The Story of Evolution in Our Time. Yes, and the book reviewer was obviously enamored with uh, uh, Dr. Grant's work as he, he clearly saw natural selection, evolution in action. Right. And he said this, In this superb account of field biologists in action, a talented science writer tells the story of two Princeton University evolutionary biologists, Peter and Rosemary Grant, engaged in the long-term study of Darwin's Galapagos finches. This work is of enormous significance because it studies evolution not through fossils but in real time. Evolution in the act of happening as we watch. For more than 20 years, the Grants and their students have monitored generation after generation of finches in one small Galapagos island, the Daphne Major, measuring beak size, weighing and observing the birds. The finches, the Grants study, eat seeds and over the years the Grants watch Radical changes in climate in some dry years dramatically alter the nature of the available seeds and in a brief span of years the grants see the beak of the finch adapt thicker beaks becoming more common in drier periods. Few studies more directly reveal evolution in action and few accounts are as well done as this one. Right. And and here we can just see again how so many people have this concept in their head that natural selection is evolution. Yes. But yes. creationists believe in natural selection and it does not support what evolutionists believe, one kind turning into a completely different kind, right? As a matter of fact, this, this is such an important issue. We actually created, created a, a tract uh, in, in, in our ministry called, Can You Tell the Difference Between Evolution and Natural Selection? Because many students, many people have come to believe in evolution because they've seen changes in living things. But it's not the right type of change. That's right. Grandma's not going in the right <laughs> direction. <laughs> so... Um, we can actually give a, a summary here of, uh, right. of, of what uh, we've learned here today. Yeah, evolution requires a way to add new genetic information. That's a main point. Natural selection does not add new information. In fact, it reduces it. Genetic copying mistakes must be invoked to explain how new information uh, can arise, and then natural selection is assumed to guide to select the different mutations. Right, mutations. But mutations studied to date all appear to be losses of information. So that's not really surprising for a random process, but that's no help to evolution. Yeah, it's illegitimate to say that natural that, that mutations can provide the new information for natural selection because all observed mutations blow away and they delete genetic information. Which means it's Ill illegitimate to use natural selection to support the theory of evolution. There we go. Right. So natural selection operating on the, uh, the created information in, in the original uh, kind, you can divvy it up different ways, but that's not evolution. It actually supports what the Bible says about God's Word. Creation Magazine Live is a production of Creation Ministries International, the publisher of Creation Magazine and the minds behind creation.com. 
If you want to chip in to support our ministry, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening. 